AWS Outposts is a fully managed service that offers the same AWS infrastructure, AWS services, APIs, and tools to virtually any data center, co-location space, or on-premise facility for a truly consistent hybrid experience. AWS Outposts is ideal for workloads that require low-latency access to on-prem services, local data processing, data residency, and migration of applications with local system interdependencies. In this episode, we talk with Joshua Bergen, General Manager of AWS Outposts at Amazon Web Services. Joshua owns strategy, roadmaps, customer experience, pricing, and demand generation for the AWS Edge hybrid compute business, including full P&L responsibility. Joshua was previously a Senior Director of Technology Platform and Services at Zynga, and a senior manager of product development at RPI before that. A few announcements before we get started. One, if you like Clubhouse, subscribe to the Club for Software Daily on Clubhouse. It's just Software Daily, and we'll be doing some interesting Clubhouse sessions within the next few weeks. Uh, and two, if you are looking for a job, we are hiring a variety of roles. We're looking for a social media manager. We're looking for a graphic designer, and we're looking for writers. If you are interested in contributing content to Software Engineering Daily, or even if you're a podcaster and you're curious about how to get involved, we are looking for people with interesting backgrounds who can contribute to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, Again, mostly we're looking for social media help and design help, but if you're a writer or a podcaster, we'd also love to hear from you. You can send me an email with your resume, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. That's jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Joshua, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeffrey. You work on AWS Outposts. We've done a show on Outposts before. Can you give a brief overview for Outposts and the typical use cases for them, and then we'll go deeper on them? Sure. At a high level, Outposts is a fully managed service from AWS. And it offers the same AWS infrastructure, services, APIs, tools that you can deploy in virtually any customer data center or co-location space or kind of an on-premise facility. And you get that truly consistent hybrid experience of, of using AWS, but in locations that you couldn't use it before. The typical use cases we're seeing are honestly a pretty wide set, but fundamentally we designed outposts to serve workloads where ultra-low latency, data residency, or local data processing are really important. Anyone with these workloads, you're going to find yourself with a need to maintain compute and storage on-prem or in a colo. Can you give a little bit more detail as to the use cases, like maybe give a few examples? Yeah, sure. You know, so we're already seeing a lot of those kind of use cases that I mentioned in market segments like financial services, retail, telecom, gaming, manufacturing, healthcare, life sciences, and also in, I mean, as you can imagine, the public sector, including our government and educational customers around the world. So, you know, to kind of dive into that a little, but one of the things I found interesting is that even customers that are already operating on AWS, you know, some with quite large deployments, they often still have workloads that need to remain on-prem for the foreseeable future. So, you know, one example might be a customer like Riot, who makes games like League of Legends, and they just released Valorant and Wild Rift. So they want to deliver amazing gameplay experiences around the world. And so they're using regions where we have them, but they also need to use outposts, or they found a use for outposts, and they're actually exploring some of our local zone offerings as well, so that no matter where the player is, they get that kind of consistent under 25 millisecond latency. 
that's an example where if we had a region in every country of the world or, you know, everywhere inside the United States, maybe they wouldn't need to use the outposts. On the other end of the spectrum, you have somebody like Morningstar, which is a, one of the world leading financial services companies. They're looking at outposts as a bridge. Long term, their vision is that most of their applications run on AWS in the regions, with some of the applications that need to remain co-located with on-prem infrastructure, like a mainframe, those will stay on the outpost. But that bridge and that migration is going to be a maybe three, five, ten-year journey. And so they didn't have to choose between waiting till they modernized all their applications, right? They can get started with outposts in a way that feels pretty similar to what they're doing on-prem and then kind of migrate things kind of a tranche at the time and pick them whether they stay on the outpost or move to the region. So they get like that huge leg up by embracing AWS APIs and services through outposts as part of this long-term migration. If I set up an outpost in my on-prem deployment, what is the division of labor between the outpost and the cloud? Because outpost is obviously interfacing with remote cloud resources. Yeah, I mean, that, that is an important detail. It's actually part of the core value proposition. So, you know, we designed it to remain connected to the AWS region so you get the benefit of all of the services we have there. So fundamentally, your hardware is obviously local. And once your application is up and running, that application is running locally on the EC2 instances and EBS volumes. Your S3 bucket data is all local. None of that leaves the outpost unless, of course, you, you tell it to leave the outpost. You can send data back to the region if you want. When you make mutating calls, so that's like if you have make an API call where you have to launch a new instance or starting and stopping an EMR or an EKS cluster, that's the container services, the EKS from Kubernetes, those reach back to the regional control planes for those services. And I mentioned the core value proposition of that consistent hybrid experience. So having that regional control plane is actually one of the ways we offer more services to customers and reduce the overhead that you need on-prem. You know, you don't need dozens and dozens of racks just to run the services. You get all of the compute and all the storage for what you're actually doing locally. So for most customers, even people in banking like FAB, which is first Abu Dhabi bank, and they're using outposts in the UAE region to kind of do both disaster recovery and, and meet local business continuity requirements for the, they're in banking, obviously. So they're still pretty happy with the fact that only the metadata, like instance IDs and so forth, leave the outposts. And having a control plane nearby but not on the outpost, as long as they have kind of good connectivity and redundancy, that still meets all their data residency requirements. It's a little different, you know, if I could dive in, if that's okay. We also offer a series of services through our Outpost Service Ready program. So there's about 55 or 60 different ISVs who offer services. A lot of those are available in the AWS marketplace in our regions as well. And of course, a lot of these services run on-prem. So a lot of these services, and I'll kind of give you a list, they run locally on the EC2 instance, right? There's nothing running in the region. So that can be like networking or backup services from people like Commvault, Veritas. Pure Storage offers their Flash Array and FlashBlade services. NetApp, those are storage services. Jenkins, Datadog, Terraform, Dynatrace, PagerDuty. You know, some of these services run entirely on your outpost. Some of them are, are SaaS, and so they might be running in a region. Trend Micro for security, SciSense for analytics, SciLaDB and Mongo, which you know are database services. Those are running directly on your outpost. So 
depends kind of how the service kind of actually is designed to run and what makes sense. But it, it is a really good question, right? It's different than your traditional purchase a server from a vendor and then put a hypervisor on top and then deploy services yourself, right? We kind of remove all that undifferentiated heavy lifting. And one of the ways we do it is by connecting back to a region. You can connect actually to any of our 23 regions around the world outside of China. And as long as the the latency works out for you, you can actually connect to regions that are not immediately next to you. Tell me more about the networking infrastructure that goes into an outpost and what you're actually looking to optimize for. Are you looking to optimize for connectivity to a variety of regions or are you looking to optimize for latency? And how do those different trade-offs in network infrastructure play out? Yeah, I mean, networking is one of the most interesting and challenging spaces, as you can imagine. There's a wide variety of configurations that we're dealing with from someone's legacy on-prem data center to a high-end co-location facility. We actually have a program where we work with these colos to you know, certify that they'll work for outposts, which makes the installation easier. We kind of look at their security and operational posture, as well as their networking configuration. So there's kind of two different pieces to the outpost in terms of hardware when you're thinking about networking. The first is we have redundant top-of-the-rack switching gear, which is reusing much of what we have developed over the last 15 years to operate at scale in our regions. And so we can support a a really high degree of interconnect performance between the EC2 instances and the storage that's running inside the rack. So that's sort of one thing. We also support 110, 25, and 100 gigabit per second networking uplinks. So you can configure this a bunch of different ways, right? You can use our direct connect service, which is, you know, kind of dedicated, don't have to leave the VPC connectivity back to one of our edge locations. You can send outpost traffic directly out over the internet. You can connect to pretty much anything inside of your own network. And, you know, again, we we support that construct I mentioned earlier, the VPC, which is what a lot of our customers tell us is pretty important, right? They want the security if they're connecting back to the AWS region, that all of their resources are in that secure private network and can connect to services that use uh, private link which is a way of extending other services such that they appear to be inside the customer's VPC. So again, if you're familiar with AWS, the outpost should feel very familiar to you as well, right? Your resources are inside the VPC. If you have multiple outposts, you can configure them so they're in different VPCs, connected to different availability zones for reliability and redundancy. You can use Direct Connect. But if you're not using AWS or that doesn't make sense for you, you don't have to do that, right? You can configure your network security and the layer two connectivity inside of your own switching gear in your data center as well. So I haven't run into very many situations we can't support. There's always more features to build, you know, whether it's network segmentation or self-service configuration for customers in terms of their networking setup, BGP support, you know, and so on. But if you look at customers in the telco space, which are some of the most demanding in terms of network, I think that's why you end up with people like Dish who we just announced a joint partnership with, making pretty big bets on outposts and infrastructure that's enabled by outposts, like our local zone offering, to deliver nationwide cloud-native 5G network built on open RAM. 
So I remember asking this question last time I did an interview about Outposts, but as far as delivering a holistic AWS experience using Outposts, it's kind of a tall order because there's so much going on in the cloud and replicating all that through Outpost infrastructure would be tough to do. How far along is that Venn diagram of AWS infrastructure that's available on Outposts versus that which must be accessed through the cloud? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good question. You know, we're, we're fond of saying here that it's still day one. And the way I would look at it is it's very early for the Outpost business. And it's honestly still pretty early for AWS. And if you look at, you know, total technology spending, a significant percentage of it, somewhere between 75 and 96% might still be considered to be on-prem. And so as AWS continues to evolve, Outposts will along with it. So I think to start with, the, the overlap between the hardware is actually pretty far along, right? We built this from the ground up so that it reuses, it makes use of our Nitro system, right? Which is the custom silicon offload card. So the virtualization stack is on that. We have the security chip and then the lightweight hypervisor. That's exactly the same thing you're running in region. So the EC2 instances and you know, over the next year, I think what you'll see is that pretty much all of the EC2 instances are gonna be available on outposts in the rack footprint as well. And we can support, I don't know if it was clear in the last interview, but each outpost rack doesn't have to be a separate logical outpost. They can be, if that's what customers want, but you can bundle together multiple racks, uh, up to about 96 racks right now, to be a, a larger logical outpost. And you know, in many ways that rivals some of our largest installations as well. And so the EC2 instances, the EBS hardware, the networking, the Nitro system, the power supplies, that's all really similar to the region, right? We, we're in complete lockstep with our hardware engineering and infrastructure teams. I think that's a real benefit to customers is they don't really have to think about that. It's not a f- universal overlap. There's some instance types like our P4 instance types for machine learning training. We don't see a lot of people doing that on-prem right now. You need a really large installation of that for it to make sense. And so most of the customers that we're talking to are like, I'd rather do that in the region and kind of make it your problem. Obviously there's some differences with the hardware because we're in a customer's location. So physical security is a little bit different. We have a fully enclosed rack with tamper detection inside the region, of course, in our availability zones and data centers. We're handling that for people. Security is a little bit different. In terms of the service basket though, what we've been focused on in kind of the short run is that what are the core services that people want? And over the last year, I think we've shipped a pretty decent amount of those, right? EC2, EBS, S3 was a top asked for service, EMR, EKS, ECS, ALB, ElastiCache, CloudEndure. These are the things that we hear from almost every customer. Uh, RDS as well, we just announced uh, SQL Server. Before that, we had Postgres and MySQL support. I think we're going to continue in the next 12 to 18 months to really focus on the core services that that everybody tells us they want. A lot of folks use these third-party services on-prem, and so they're looking to continue using those. So that's why we had the Outpost Service Ready program. And then, of course, you can already use many of the services, especially the management and governance ones that people are already using in region. So, you know, on Outposts, you can put an instance in an auto-scaling group. You can use CloudTrail, CloudWatch. You know, these things that kind of just work. I wouldn't say we're anywhere near done. I think there's, this has been my experience. I mean, I've been at AWS 
seven years and Amazon a total of 10. And when you talk to customers, no, nobody is ever fully satisfied with what you've done and they're always giving you new ideas, whether it in the outpost case for new form factors and new services. So we're gonna, we're gonna continue to do things over the next 12 months that up the game there. I don't think we'll ever offer all you know 185 or 200 plus AWS services on outposts. Customers aren't really asking us for that. And in that case, you know, we also have the local zones offering, which are built on outposts and wavelength as well, which is our 5G enabled edge compute offering. So all, those are already built on outposts. They have a wider range of service offerings and you know they're installed in metro areas. We have four of the local zones right now, and we've announced that we'll have support for 15 of those across the U.S. this year. So we hear more from customers that they really want a big basket of services. They're either pretty happy running in the region, or they would like us to run a kind of more elastic local zone somewhere near them. They don't want to necessarily have an entire data center replicating what they could get from AWS. You are the general manager for Outposts, and that involves a lot of moving pieces. Can you tell me about how the team is structured and how you manage it? I can give you a little insight there. I mean, the general manager role at Amazon you know, emerged from the concept of many years ago, what we used to call two pizza teams and single-threaded leadership, where we really make sure that each team can operate uh, relatively independently and be loosely coupled with other teams and communicate through kind of hardened APIs rather than stuffing everything under you know, single larger groups, which tends to slow things down, especially on the innovation front. So the GM role can be different from team to team, but fundamentally you're responsible for the uh, entire business, which includes you know, product and engineering and business results and so forth. You know, the rest of the structure, we do what makes sense for employees and their careers and it can fluctuate from team to team. But I'm, I'm curious at a, at a deeper level, if you can talk about it, like how do you orchestrate all the cross-functional work? Because there's so much hardware and software integration and moving pieces. I, I'm, I'm just curious about the details a little more. Yeah, I mean, what I, what I can share is that's pretty common at any larger enterprise. And we have good relationships with our, our sister teams. At Amazon, there is a process that people have talked about this in public before that we call OP1, which is an annual planning process where we all get together and kind of stand back and take a look at the next 18 months and three years and so forth. And that's where a lot of the coordination happens. We make sure that initiatives that rely on teams working together get the proper attention and get funded. I wouldn't say this is a, a solved problem, at AWS or Amazon, no different than anywhere else. There's always more that we want to do for our customers than we can get to in any time period. But I think what it comes down to is that the teams look at our customers and the overall business and you know what are the exciting new areas. And I, I think Outpost is one of those, but it's not the only one. And we try and rationalize our investments across all of those opportunities in the case of Outposts, I think one of the things we benefit from, I mentioned this earlier, is the fact that it's, I don't want to trivialize the, the work here, but it's just EC2, right? It's the same EC2, it's the same EBS, it's the same S3. You know, the hardware engineering work, we, di we didn't invent hardware engineering suddenly for Outposts. We've been in the hardware engineering and the custom silicon business for, for quite some time. You know, back in 2015, we purchased a company called uh, Annapurna, 
and they're some of the geniuses and, and hardworking individuals behind the Nitro system and Graviton and Inferentia and Tranium, which are custom chips that give people just amazing price performance. So we get to leverage all of that work. We don't have to go spin up a hardware engineering team or an infrastructure operations team. The fact that we're already operating around the world at scale and have logistics experience and supply chain management experience, Outpost is drafting off of that. I'm not saying it's identical, right? There's a little bit different work, right? But that's what I think makes it more possible for us to move quickly. You know, we didn't just start yesterday. Describe the different models of Outpost and how they differ from one another. Yeah, we we call those, I think what you're talking about, right, is the form factors. Yeah, well, the the 1U and the 2U. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a good, uh, we, back in reInvent 2019, what we launched, the first sort of form factor for Outposts is a 42U kind of full rack form factor. This is an industry standard you know, 80 inch tall, 24 inch wide, 48 inch deep rack. So that one is takes up one rack position, can take up more rack positions if you order multiple racks. It's designed with security in mind, fully enclosed with locks, tamper detection, redundant power supplies, uh, requires between 5 kVA and 15 kVA of power. There's also redundant networking built in. I mentioned this earlier. Depending on what SKU you order, there's between you know two and eleven or so EC2 instances and EBS and S3 storage per rack. That's obviously people who are in a controlled environment who need a lot of compute and storage, pretty traditional data center colo type folks. What we actually heard after we announced that was, I mean, there are a lot of people who thought this was great, right? I talked about banking and gaming and healthcare life sciences, telco. People said this is great. We love it. Can you make it even smaller because we have locations like restaurants and telco, like at the the edge sites, the cell towers, manufacturing. Could you shrink AWS and and allow us to put it in a place where we really only need a couple of servers, right? I mean, it might be virtual machines, but, you know, a couple of physical servers. So 1U and 2U, and again, these are just rack units, which is an industry standard way of measuring how much space a server takes up. 1U and 2U are much smaller than 42U, as the the number would indicate. So they fit in the same standard EIA 310 19-inch racks, usually alongside other equipment like other servers or network switches. And the way to dimensionalize them is they're about one and two pizza boxes in height. So the 1U is about an inch and three quarters tall and, and 24 inches deep, which is kind of shallow. And the 2U is three and a half inches tall and designed to fit into 36 inch deep racks. So both of those have lower power and network bandwidth requirements than a full rack outpost. You're not gonna be able to build a full rack or a multi-rack outpost out of these 1U and 2U devices. That's not really what they're designed for. And then specifically what we announced at reInvent this year or back at the end of 2020 was that the 1U instance is using that Graviton 2 processor. And so that's like, really great price performance, up to 40% better than than kind of comparable Intel offerings. These are a good match for what we're hearing from customers where both space is constrained and they only need kind of precise amount of compute and storage that will fit in 1U. The first versions of these will support up to 64 vCPUs, 128 gigabytes of memory, and four terabytes of local NVMe storage. And that's about it. The 2U offering is actually based on an Intel processor 
and will support up to 128 vCPUs, 512 gigs of RAM, and about 8 gigs, or excuse me, 8 terabytes of local NVMe storage. The, the benefit of the 2U server as well is that we can fit in some optional accelerators like uh, GPUs or our AWS Inferentia inference chip for ML workloads. Can't really fit those in 1U, just a sort of power and space constraint. But that's actually a lot of flexibility if you think about it. You've got everything from as little as a single 1U outpost, where you could kind of bundle the 1U or 2U outposts together to get about six of them. Or you can install a single rack or up to 96 racks. So I think that covers a lot of ground with you know what we're going to be releasing later this year with the small form factors. Do you have a sense for what the overall market demand for outpost-like systems is? You know, that, that is a, it's an interesting question. I think what we've said earlier, we've said before, and I think this is still true, right? The vast majority of technology spending is still on-prem, somewhere between 75 and 96%. Depending on how you measure the industry, it's between $1 and $4 trillion a year in spending. These are just kind of standard industry terminology or kind of measurements. So what I would say is, I think in the fullness of time, most people are not going to want to remain uh, retain their own data centers, and they're going to find themselves migrating the bulk of their workloads to one of our regions. The cost benefits, the operational benefits, the scale, the elasticity, all those services you get, it's just going to make sense, right? We've only got 25 regions right now. We'll have more over time. We've announced five more. That's 80 availability zones right now, and there's, I think, 16 more that have been announced, right? But they're not in every country. And so if you kind of go back and say, all right, well, what workloads could run on an outpost? I think you got to give two different answers to this. There are workloads that will remain on the outpost uh, for the foreseeable future, maybe forever, right? Until we can, as I like to joke, until we can solve the speed of light problem. If you need really low latency or there's a, a regulatory reason why something can't leave a facility or a country, or, you know, in the cases of uh, iGaming or mobile betting, you'll have all these municipalities actually saying to people like Tipico, which is one of our Outpost customers, you can run your application and and make it available in our state for mobile devices or, or online betting, but it has to be in a specific facility or a specific cage or that sort of thing. You know, we can't control uh, regulations. We can only make sure that we comply with them. So I think those workloads, you know, or a manufacturing facility where you can't really tolerate downtime based on a connectivity going away, those workloads are going to remain a good target for outposts for until such point at where connectivity or regulations are no longer a requirement. Then what's interesting to me is the rest of that spending that's on-prem If you've got a workload where the latency isn't a factor, there's not a data residency requirements, you don't need to do the data processing locally, like near hospital or lab equipment or for an autonomous vehicle garage, those people might still find themselves with the opportunity to embrace AWS by running the workload on an outpost. I think long-term, most of those people will be comfortable moving to a local zone or a region, but it's not something we need to be prescriptive about. You know, we we have the benefit of being AWS and offering people choice, right? And having outposts be the foundation of local zones and wavelength, which we deployed with our telecom partners and the 5G partners around the world, like Vodafone and Verizon and SKT and KDDI. 
is we can serve all of these needs, right? If you want to run something in your own data center, we got your back. If you want to run it in a metro area, we'll have a local zone there. Or, you know, if you need a 5G application to support roaming, you can put it in a wavelength zone. If you get comfortable running it in a region or if some of the, like the data warehouse or your HPC cluster might run in the region or your machine learning training. So, you know, I, I kind of look at it not as an either or, and, and some of it's going to depend on when you are planning to do the migration and what the rules are locally in your country and what the comfort level is inside your organization. What are the hardest engineering problems you've worked on so far with Outposts? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> we love to do hard things at AWS overall. You know, in my last seven years, every time I feel like we've solved whatever the hardest problem was right then, a new one emerges because we're never satisfied, because our customers are never satisfied. If I had to answer that question for Outpost, I'd actually say that security is a hard problem, right? We often say security is job zero here. And although it's a shared responsibility with our customers and we provide services and tooling, when you're deploying AWS infrastructure in somebody's facility, we take the security of that infrastructure and your data as seriously as we do operating anything in our region. Right. So the fact that we already had Nitro and the Nitro controller and the security was pretty good. But we have people on our security team who think about this all day, every day. And we work with them to do things like improve the physical security of the rack itself. Right. I mentioned that it's fully enclosed. There's a locking back and front. There is tamper detection on the rack. There's tamper detection in every service. Anthony Liguri talked about this with you, I think, last time. But there is a key that you can remove that essentially destroys all of the data on the server because everything is encrypted at rest all the way down to the DRAM. I don't know if I want to make this kind of bold of a claim, but I would say that it's actually at least as secure, if not more secure from an infrastructure level than anything else you can deploy in your own data center. So we didn't just slough that responsibility off on people and say, it's up to you to secure your own infrastructure. That's actually a really hard problem, right? Because security is not solved, right? There's always new attack vectors and side channels and things to think about. And again, the good news there is we have lots of people who think about this probably even when they're sleeping. Some of the smartest people I've worked with. I think the other one beyond security is that you mentioned this earlier, right? You know, how do we get the Venn diagram of overlap to be high? Delivering that consistent set of APIs and features while shrinking it down you know, sometimes to a single rack or maybe a single service. That's interesting, right? It's not easy to think about how you deliver EBS or ALB or RDS and give all of the features that people want, right? The ones at least that make sense, including, you know, high availability features with outpost to outpost connectivity in an environment where sometimes the network is not managed between the devices, right? That's not true in our regions, right? We obviously fully manage these things and build in redundancy. So that's hard because it's not the same for every service. A lot of you mentioned earlier, the GM construct. And so a lot of my job is to make sure that we build primitives down at the EC2 layer, the networking layer, the EBS layer, communication between outposts. We build primitives that other service teams can use. So, you know, I I don't know if we've gotten this perfect just yet, but we're very conscious of the fact that We have to solve that problem so it's not a problem for our service teams and that it's not something that the customer really needs to think about. That's what they expect if 
if they're going to get something from AWS. Maybe one more that just occurred to me is, you know, the last year, as, as we know, has been one of the more unusual years in recent memory due to, of course, the pandemic. And so if you think about outposts, we have to install them. We actually designed this so that they're installed by our own technicians. We operate in, used to be 15 countries, then 20 countries. And as of last week, it's about 57. And so as you can imagine, some of these installations that we've done in the past year have been tricky because of COVID restrictions. I mean, we have to take the safety, the physical kind of health safety of our customers and our technicians super seriously. And of course, we have to meet all the regulations that keep changing and we've got to meet customer deadlines. So figuring that out, which, you know, maybe that's a temporary problem, that's been interesting, right? Installs in the Outback in Australia, in New Zealand, countries like Taiwan that were under quarantine restrictions, the UK. You know, we, we've met all of these requirements, but it's been, it's been a little touch and go there, and we've had to be creative. Are there any customer use cases for outposts that have surprised you? surprised us. You know, again, one of the last things I've learned in the seven years is that we are fond of saying this, right? 90% of the time, customers, they know best what you should be doing and you should listen to them. So even on a newer service, like Outpost, when you're, when you're launching, you've kind of learned to expect to hear something new from customers. So it's not like a huge shock. Even if you hear like you're on the, the wrong track, which happens from time to time, right? We can adjust course. So that said, I think pleasantly surprised, maybe not shocked, by traction in a couple market segments. I mentioned iGaming or mobile betting. That's one that I've been, I think what I've been surprised with is how quickly cities and states around at least the US and in some cases around the world, they're moving to legalize this and build regulatory frameworks. And so we've seen customers like Typico that are based in Europe they're finding it pretty easy to make a few changes to the application that are already running on AWS in Europe and then deploy them on outposts. They, they talked about how it was kind of a pivot from their plan, which was to use third-party hardware until we released outposts. And I think I've been pleasantly surprised there that they've embraced it so quickly and that we've been able to meet the regulatory requirements, kind of working with different colo partners and different public policy people. You know, in terms of other surprises, I think also the early traction with Telco has been a pleasant surprise. It's not like a, a shock because we kind of knew that Telco was a thing where you're going to have on-prem installation, you know, next to other equipment, whether it's at a cell site or a centralized facility. And so what I've been surprised with, though, is the pace at which they're willing to kind of dive in with us give us feedback and then and guide the roadmap. So that, that's where we ended up with that huge announcement with Dish Networks, where they're building this first of its kind, industry first, cloud native 5G network. They're the ones uh, gonna be using the small form factor outpost, the one U, two U at the edge. They're gonna be using outposts in the nationwide network of local zones. And then of course, running some of their workloads back in the region. It's pretty validating to hear from customers like Dish that it's not just the outpost that attracts them to us, right? Maybe the outpost is the kicker. You know, they want to standardize on a single vendor. But innovations like Graviton, multiple form factors of outposts, multiple deployment options like local zones as well, that's been surprisingly validating to hear that we're on the right track this early. I try not to believe my own hype, which is, you know, I'm very proud of what the team has delivered in a relatively short amount of time. 
But I'm always pleasantly surprised when we hear from customers across all these different market segments and around the world that we're onto something and they want more of it. Usually the, the unpleasant surprise is when you get silence. You know, like when you have a few customers telling you that you've delivered what they want, but most of what you're worried about is not hearing feedback from people. I'd rather hear feedback that people want more, this is definitely true in manufacturing, than people don't really embrace at all the, the vision that we have. What's the process of maintenance for outposts? Like, you know, if I install this thing on my on-premise deployment, then is there enough transparency in the infrastructure that I can figure it out for myself how this hardware works and I can do all the necessary maintenance? Or is it expected that it's just going to run so operationally smoothly that I won't really need to fix it? Or if I do need to fix it, I, I call a third party or I call AWS and they come fix it. Yeah, you know, there's a mix, except the core value proposition is that it's fully managed by AWS. And what we mean there is that we're monitoring the environmental conditions, the temperature, whether things are working, hardware components, whether they look like they're failing. Obviously, individual pieces of hardware fail from time to time, and we look for things like that. We monitor that. We'll kind of proactively notify you and then figure out when we can replace most of the things. A few of the components are designed to be serviceable by the customer, like replaceable power supplies. But in terms of, you know, adding additional servers or replacing a server, that's something that's a part of the service that we actually provide for you. So, you know, we kind of have a two business day objective for replacing things. Of course, people who are doing a high availability have redundancy built in to the outpost to begin with, right? They have more than the bare minimum number of servers that they need. It's not something customers need to think a ton about, right? Ideally, you know, if we're doing our job, which I think we do pretty good at, the customer can just sit there and be confident that we are looking at the hardware, that when they need to add additional servers, they can reach out to us through their, you know, normal channels and we will add things over, you know, a couple of weeks, which people tell us is actually pretty fast, right? They can be up and running much faster than with traditional hardware. And then as far as maintenance, including things like I don't know if people appreciate this, but, you know, the next time there's some kind of chipset level, you know, heart bleed firmware issue, it'll be patched on your outpost just like it is in the region before you even hear about it. So that we're taking care of behind the scenes for people. It doesn't require any downtime. I'd like to come back to an example that you mentioned, which is Riot Games. And it's just interesting to me that you could deploy outposts and use them to reduce latency of a multiplayer game, which has, you know, serious latency requirements. Can you tell me a little bit more about that specific use case? And why was it that the deployment of on-prem infrastructure was able to reduce latency? Yeah, I mean, with Riot and a lot of other customers in kind of the AAA gaming space, this might be a little bit less true, not entirely, but for, for mobile games, but in the AAA gaming space, you have a speed of light problem. And so when you think about multiplayer games, you know, there's there traditionally you not necessarily have literally everybody playing on the same server at exactly the same time. The game is usually designed to scale out across multiple servers. And in the traditional world, what these people would do would work with a colo provider or build up their own data center. And they'd build up a few of them around the world. And they would just kind of try to get like, roughly speaking, the best coverage for where they thought the most players would be. Obviously, it's not cost effective if you're 
even for a pretty big company like Riot, it's not necessarily cost effective to have as much infrastructure deployed as AWS has around the world because you're the only one using it. And so in the case of Riot, what they were looking for was they're going to release their new game, which is now live, called Valorant, highly successful from their perspective. And so they're using a few of the AWS regions, but there are other places like the center of the United States, or, uh, the US, and places around the world where our regions are just far enough away that people who are close to the region might get 40 milliseconds of latency and people who are further away from that region. Like if you can imagine using a region in Frankfurt and connecting from the Middle East, you'd be 40 milliseconds away from the Middle East and 25 milliseconds away, which actually gives you a little bit of an unfair advantage in some of these games that you're playing real time. And so Riot already had the game server technology to distribute their players to a region that is closest to them from the latency perspective. What they were looking for was to give everybody that 25 millisecond experience. So outposts are essentially strategically placed around the world, not individual outposts, you know, three or four of these installs with multiple racks. And they kind of give those players that, that equal 25 millisecond, you know, give or take experience. If we had local zones in all of these locations, I think they would embrace those. And I'm relatively agnostic long-term about what people embrace there as long as it's, you know, AWS. A lot of other gaming companies, you know, that we're talking to, it's the exact same consideration. How do they get cost effectively the right number of installations? Too many installations is actually bad, right? If you have every, I mean, if you devolve this all the way to the end and you had five players per outpost spread across a thousand locations, that's super low latency, but it's actually not better because people need to play together. So you need to have kind of some concentration. So it's kind of an interesting map that's fundamentally just based on overall internet connectivity, the AWS backbone, how latency sensitive the game is to begin with, how the matchmaking algorithms work for those games. You know, some games require a higher density of players per location to make sense. And other ones, you can have, you know, very small deployments, five or six person per game server, so you can actually have more locations and even lower latency. That's going to be game dependent. As we're winding down, I guess I'd like to get your perspective on the future, what you're focused on with Outposts today and where you see the product going. It's an interesting question. You know, I mean, in, in many ways, I like to joke that we already, my job as GM is to live in the future, right? Which is we're always looking ahead. I think Outposts in, in some ways, you know, came from an idea about where things are headed, which is we think the vast majority of workloads are still moving to the cloud, but extending the concept of the cloud to include deployments at people's on-prem locations or cities. And so I, I'm also focused on execution in the here and now, right? We still need to release our small form factors later this year. There's ongoing work at all times to keep a super high operational and availability bar. We've got a pretty exciting roadmap. You know, we've, we've done some releases earlier this year for S3 and EBS local snapshots. And so I think the future looks a lot like the past, right? We listen to customers in all these market segments. We're going to deliver more form factors, support for more countries, right? We're up from 20 to 57. You know, we're going from one form factor to three a few instance types to many instance types. 
a few services to, you know, 15 to 20 or so. The ability to, you know, have accelerator cards and do inference at the edge, which I think if I look ahead two or three years, the biggest thing I'm hearing from customers is they want to accelerate their migration to the cloud. They look at outposts in many ways as filling a gap that was holding them back from moving workloads that won't run on the outpost to the AWS region. That's been an interesting discovery for me where what they tell us is, look, you know, I don't want to train my developers on three different stacks, or maybe I've tried some kind of hybrid service before that, that hasn't really panned out because I'm still managing the hardware and I'm still managing a cloud deployment and, you know, getting my developers trained up on those APIs. They already know that a lot of the workloads will run in the region just fine. But what they want is all my developers are going to be using AWS and they'll be using them whether the workload is, you know, some kind of huge machine learning workload running in the cloud or an edge deployment on an outpost in a restaurant or retail environment or manufacturing firm. And so the challenge for us, you know, if you say like, what does the future look like is the challenge is to stay on top of what customers are asking and deliver these new form factors, you know, new instances with better performance, lower prices. Machine learning is just, I hear this kind of from probably 70 to 80% of the customers that they're looking to deliver machine learning inference workloads in factories and restaurants and retail stores at the edge or or on-prem and to kind of modernize their applications. So it's up to us to move fast enough. And, you know, we've got a pretty good track record there over the last 15 years, but you can't really ever rest. That seems like a a good place to close off. I guess I'll close with with one final question. What is the hardest problem that you are encountering in your job today, whether it's, uh, you know, management or uh, technical problems or whatever you want to, whatever you want to mention? I think the hardest problem in AWS is, and probably for my job, but I don't think it's just about outposts. It's, you know, we really do spend a lot of time. I spend a ton of time, you know, listening to customers, prospective customers, people who are not customers and, and who tell us that we're on the wrong track. I, I've kind of made that my mission over the last seven years here. And the hardest thing is that they tell you all this exciting stuff, the customers that you could build, and you never have enough resources to get it all done at the same time. And frankly, if you tried to do all of it at the same time, you wouldn't deliver anything in the short term. So balancing the kind of fierce pace that we've been able to keep up with an expanded set of offerings there's no silver bullet for that problem, right? I mean, you can't get infinite resources. Even if you can, you'd run into, you know, kind of classic development effort problems where you can't just throw a thousand people at something and have it done in a day. So I think that's the hardest thing is there's so many exciting ideas and you can't get them all done at the same time and then move on to the next set of ideas. It's a good problem to have, but I'm pretty aware that we need to keep you know, serving our customers and delivering quickly to them. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jeff.